Yeah, I almost yesterday watching all that was taking place in Israel, I almost just shifted completely to, to talk about Israel this morning. I'm not going to do that. Uh, I prayed a lot about it, and um, this is where the Lord has us. This is where he wants us this morning. So, so it was 20 years ago today, Sergeant Pepper taught the bit. No, um, it, it was 20 years ago today that we began as this church to pray. October the 8th, 2003, British Christian Fellowship was, was born, if you will, in Rod and Barb Gilmore's living room. Um, I was gonna have all the first timers stand up, but I want to remind you and say again clearly that all of the honor and praise and glory goes to Jesus Christ, to the Lord for his faithfulness. He is faithful to things that just seem ridiculous to us. And, uh, well, January 11th, after that, so we began on October the 8th, on January the 11th of 2004, we moved out into the barn for more room. We started our Sunday mornings there. We spent 11 years in that barn. Can I just see a show of hands how many people uh, worshiped in the barn when we were in the barn? Okay, wow, it's a lot of you in, in first service. I'm guessing it's gonna be less second service, but I could be wrong. We were out there, we spent 11 years, we had to bring our own chairs. When did you ever go to church where it was like, hey, we're meeting, bring your own chair? Okay. Uh, we froze in the wintertime. We had to open the big barn doors in the summer to, to keep it aired out. Uh, parking was a trip. <laughs> During the meetings, some of you may recall Annie the Yellow Lab that wandered the aisles and laid down at my feet and snored through most of my teaching. Occasionally, we had uh, sparrow wars in the rafters. More than once, they tried to white out my notes. <laughs> and then there was that Sunday in the middle of Holy, Holy, Holy when Buck, the horse, invited himself to worship. <laughs> I'm not kidding, walked right in the side door. Thankfully, Rod was sitting on that side of the barn that morning, jumped up and grabbed Buck and led him out. And, and I could just see Buck as Rod's leaning him out going, what, I wanna worship too. You know, it was just... You just, you can't learn that stuff. And it was so much fun. We couldn't advertise, you know. Hey, plant a church, don't advertise. Let me tell you, it's one of the best evangelistic tools out there. Our fledgling staff, as it, as it changed and grew, uh, we all worked out of our homes and we worked out of coffee shops and just did things that way. Uh, one Friday morning, many of you recall, a cease and desist order was tacked up on the door of the barn telling us not to meet anymore. And of course, after we met that Sunday, we got together and, and prayed about it. We went before the hearing examiner of Island County and the hearing examiner sided with us and told Island County, you gotta work with these people. So God was faithful. God has been faithful. God has covered us through all these years just in remarkable ways. So many more things that I could, that I could talk about. In fact, Island County then said, you really need to find property and move out of this barn. You could see God working in that because I don't think anyone, any of us ever would have moved out of the barn. I think we would have stayed right there because we had gotten to a place, we installed some heating, you know, it just had the coolest feel and we loved being in that place. And I was ready to, you know, do three, four services if we needed to do that. But the county said, you know, by code, you, you just can't be there. And so they, they were patient to give us time and we began to look around. And God, the story is long, gifted us this property. And we have made a decision to buy it, to empty out our bank account to get it. And the next morning we got a phone call and a gentleman said, I'd like to buy the property and give it to the church. 
And there have been so many moments like that where we were right at the end of ourselves and it was really just the very beginning of what God was about to do. So this has been a remarkable blessing. We've been nine years now in this building, 11 years in the barn before that. God only knows how much longer. I don't expect it will be long. The past two decades in our culture has seen such dramatic change. 20 years, it's gone by like that for me, but think about how different our culture is in 2023 versus 20, uh, 2003. Or even just prior to 2000, all the things that have changed and how a, a mega shift literally has happened in culture, the upheaval that we have seen. We've seen here at the bridge, dear ones come and go. We've shared joys and sorrows and successes and failures and seasons of sweet peace and seasons of tremendous upheaval. And that's really been the experience of the last two decades in this world. But I say again to you, through everything, God has been faithful. Through everything, God is faithful. Psalm 36, verse five, your loving kindness, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the skies. And in the end, it will not be the bridge story that we tell. It's gonna be the old, old story. That's the one we'll remember. As Jesus said in Luke 24, 46, thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead on the third day and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. He said it, he did it, and he is doing it right now among us. One person at a time. That was something else that was such a blessing early on with the barn. We, we were not a big blowout thing. I mean, we had a handful of people that started gathering and worshiping and sharing in the word together and, and then a handful more and a handful more and then we opened out one side and a few more came and then we opened out the other side of the barn and a few more came and then we needed to add a service. But it wasn't, it wasn't like some have seen or some churches where you just see this big explosion. It's just been one by one by one by one as Jesus is calling people. And that has only been, by the way, don't forget this, that's only been the experience just of this church fellowship. That's not even to mention all of the other brothers and sisters in Christ, in Oak Harbor, in Anacortes, on South Whidbey Island, out on the, on the mainland, out into the islands where God is calling people one by one by one by one and he is doing his work. And that's so encouraging to recognize that we are part of this amazing plan of Jesus that, that calls for the repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And it's one person at a time because it always begins with a heart of repentance. Back in verse one of 2 Samuel 12, we read this really focused on this last week. The Lord sent Natan to David. God sent Natan to David. Remember with the story of a lamb slain, interesting. But you need to understand that while the Lord sent Natan to David, it was not Natan who convicted David, it was the spirit of the living God. It was the Holy Spirit who brought that conviction. Jesus said in John 14, 26, the helper, that is the parakletos, uh, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send to you in my name, he will teach you all things. Not Pastor Rick. He will teach you all things. And 
he will bring to your remembrance all that I said to you, Jesus says. John 15, 26, Jesus said, when the helper comes to whom I will send you from the Father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. I've said this before, we know where the Holy Spirit is present in a church body. It's where Jesus is proclaimed. It's where Jesus is talked about and focused on and considered because the testimony of the Holy Spirit is Jesus. Indeed, the entire witness of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus, Revelation 19, 10 tells us. And then in John chapter 16, and just listen for a moment to this. Jesus said, I tell you the truth, verse seven, John 16, seven, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. That's rebellion. Sin is rebellion. And concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. What does he mean by that? There's no immediate example of righteousness anymore. Without the righteous one there, Jesus Christ, what's the example of righteousness? Before him, it was the law. But the law could only condemn because it was perfect and we are not. So here comes Jesus in the flesh. And when he was with us, when he was there with the apostles at that time, righteousness was present. But the Holy Spirit is now going to convict the world of righteousness because Jesus is going to the Father. And then he said that the Spirit will convict the world concerning judgment because the ruler of the world has been judged. In essence, rejection of Jesus is alignment with the one who has been judged, that is the devil. So the Holy Spirit comes to convict. It is still the work of the Holy Spirit to convict a heart concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, and he does it with the story of a lamb that was slain. Natan goes to David, tells the story of a lamb slain, and David turns to Natan and says, I have sinned against the Lord. Convicted in the heart, true conviction by the Spirit who convicted David. David speaks just three words in the Hebrew. Chatati la Yahweh. Chatati la Yahweh. I have sinned against the Lord. That's all he says. And it's enough. We talked about that last week a bit, that there are some who say, well, I have sinned against the Lord, that's all he has to say? Yes. Because what he says in those three Hebrew words is straight from the heart. Which is why Natan said to David, the Lord also has taken away your sin, you shall not die. He wasn't saved because of his many words. The Lord didn't forgive him because he had some super spiritual phraseology to his prayer. It's because God hears the heart. He hears your heart today and mine just as clearly as he heard David's heart when David said, I have sinned against the Lord. The Lord heard his heart. Now, this is what I really love about David's life and, and about the scriptures. God made sure that we could hear David's heart too. He made sure we could hear David's heart. Turn in your Bibles to Psalm 51, and we're gonna spend the rest of the morning there. 
Psalm 51. And by the way, if you're visiting or new and you see all these verses, it is, there is no expectation on any of us that you try and keep up with every verse as it's quoted. That's just, those are just the supplemental verses. What I encourage you to do, and I've said this before, just stay in the main passage. Well, it was 2 Samuel 12, and now it's Psalm 51, and stay in Psalm 51. If you hear a verse that you love or touches you, great. Grab a hold of that, write it down. It's up there so you can find it quickly. But don't feel like you gotta rush all over the place or you're gonna miss what the Holy Spirit is saying to you. Psalm 51 Notice how it begins. Before verse one, it says, a psalm of David when Natan the prophet came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. So David writes this after the fact. After he says, I have sinned, la Yahweh, against the Lord. And this, then he wrote, and, but, but before it says a psalm of David, look at real closely there, because this is like original Hebrew, for the choir director. I'm gonna write a song of my own sin and repentance for the choir. What? Why would anyone want to publish such an intensely personal repentance? Well, while it is intensely personal and intimate, it is also commonly public. Psalm 51 is preaching to the choir. Why? Because the choir needs to learn repentance. Isaiah 64, verse six says, all of us have become like one who is unclean. All of our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment and all of us wither like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. And I'll tell you something, and and I'm kind of being a little tongue in cheek, but the truth is absolute here. Church choir robes can't cover filthy rags. Our righteous deeds are filthy rags. So the song of repentance in Psalm 51 is for us all to learn and to know. Verse one, be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. And all of this is at the heart of David's repentance. I have sinned against the Lord. And now his heart gushes as he begins to write these things down and describe, what do you mean I have sinned against the Lord? Several things to note. And I'll try to give you this list again at the end if you miss any of these, because people always do, and sometimes I do too. First of all, write this down, repentance always regards the Lord. Repentance always regards the Lord, the entire prayer of repentance is Godward. The whole thing. David doesn't speak of himself. He doesn't equivocate. He doesn't try to, try to you know, find a way out or look for a loophole or, or, or share. You know, I, but I, I sinned. Yes, I did. But, but, but it's because he doesn't do any of that. He stays focused on the Lord. Follow it through. In verse one, David says, your loving kindness, your compassion, In verse four, he says, your justification. In verse 11, your presence, your Holy Spirit. He says in verse 12, your salvation. 
Verse 13, your ways. Verse 14, your righteousness. Verse 15, your praise. Verse 18, your favor. The whole prayer is a prayer of repentance to the Lord. It is focused on the Lord because repentance regards the Lord. Understand that repentance is not me just gushing my guilt. It is me turning to the Lord. The confession is part of that, but repentance is simply regarding the Lord with my life, however messed up it might be. And this is what David does. And in verse four again, against you, you only, I have sinned. Every sin I've ever committed is in truth against God and God alone. Think about that in your own life. Yes, it's true that your sin may impact or affect or even afflict or hurt other people. Yes, your sin will do that, but all sin is sin against God. However I sin, whatever I do, if I sin in secret, sin in quiet, or sin in a way that hurts people around me, it is sin against God. Why? Because only God is righteous. Only God. We are made righteous by the blood of Jesus. We'll get to that. But all sin is sin against God because he alone is undeserving of being sinned against. Now, that may be hard for some of us because you might think, I've been sinned against. Are you saying I deserved it? I'm not saying that you deserve abuse or mistreatment that you've received if you have What I am saying is let the one without sin throw the first stone. Because there's not a one of us who could pick up a rock in that case. We are so quick to point the finger to talk about those who have against those who, you know, hurt me or or worked against me or or did things that were violating of, of me. All sin is against the Lord. All sin. Furthermore, you know what? I can ask you to forgive me, but your forgiveness to me is limited. That is a very different thing. I can forgive, but forgiveness is limited. God's forgiveness is everlasting. When God forgives, he gives grace forever, and once he does so, he never repents of it. We are really good at saying, oh, I forgive you, but then they do something else slightly wrong and all the stuff I forgave them for before comes right back. Not with the Lord. He forgives and it is literally from the east to the west so far have I removed your transgressions. There is no returning to the old stuff. Well, you you offended me today, Rick, and by the way, that's like 10 years ago when you And that's what I do. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? Numbers 23, 19. So when God offers forgiveness, that's it. Forgiveness is eternal. And look back at verse one one more time. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, your chesed, your grace, According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. My compassion just isn't that great. That's something I've really had to work on over the years. It's not that I don't love people, I truly do. But my heart doesn't break sometimes like other people's. 
I think maybe that's why I'm in ministry. It's like, okay, whatever. <laughs> I've had to learn compassion. Maybe some of you as well. My, my wife is very compassionate. She is so compassionate. When I bring up an offense against me, she always takes the other side. I'm like, hey, one flesh union. I can't blot out past offenses. God does. God does. We even have trouble forgiving ourselves when he's already forgiven us. We're still holding on. We're like, but, but Lord, but I, what about this? He's like, what about what? It's gone. David says, be gracious to me, I love it, according to your grace, not mine. Don't base this on the kind of grace I would show people. Remember what John says, John 1, 16, for of his fullness we have all received and grace upon grace. You cannot plumb the depths of the grace of God. It is so huge, so eternal. The law was given through Moses and we recognize sin by it, but grace and truth are realized in Jesus Christ. You can't get it anywhere else. You can get grace for the moment from a friend, a family member, someone you know here on earth, a little bit of grace for a little bit of time, but only Jesus gives grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Second thing to note here, first was that repentance always regards the Lord. Secondly, repentance recognizes complete cleansing. When you turn to the Lord in repentance, you recognize a complete cleansing. David gives two perspectives here and one of them is the Lord's and one of them is his own. Verse two is the Lord's perspective. When he says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, that's what God does. He cleanses thoroughly, but here's the human perspective, verse three. For I know my transgression and my sin is always before me. You see the difference? He cries out for a thorough cleansing. That's what God offers. And then in the very next verse, he's like, because I just keep seeing my sin. There it is. It just stays there right in front of me. I can't seem to let go of it. Brothers and sisters, listen. You will never be able to let go of your failures and sins if you don't repent. The key is repentance. Not the world's view of repentance crawling on your knees up a cobblestone pathway. No, it's the Lord's view of repentance turning to him. Turning to him and turning the mess over to him. And when we do that, thorough cleansing, complete cleansing comes. Isaiah 118, the Lord made the offer. Come now, let us reason together. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they're red like crimson, they will be like wool. And I wonder really if, if sometimes some of us haven't just grown too familiar with our sin or too comfortable with our sin and that's the reason we don't let go. Even that sin that we are ashamed of, we know it so well. So we'll cling to it and hold on to it and don't let go of it. And I have one word for you if that's you this morning. Repent. Repent because God cleanses thoroughly. Look at the end of verse four. He says, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Literally, you are made right in your words and pure when you judge. 
Because when the Holy Spirit convicts the heart of sin, it's always right. He is always right to do so. And when Jesus says, forgiven, it is from a pure heart pumping out precious blood. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. We're talking about that complete cleansing. 1 Peter 1.18, you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. A thorough cleansing. And the repentant recognize that as we turn to the Lord, the word for what we become is justified. Just as if I'd never sinned. I love that wordplay because it comes to mind every time I see the word justified. It's just as if I'd never sinned. And his judgment is pure and it is secure. Verse five, behold, David says, I was brought forth in iniquity. And in sin, my mother conceived me. Now, that's a really interesting verse. In fact, it, it ties into an old Talmudic story from the Jewish oral tradition that is based in part from this verse and also from what was orally taught that, that cast doubt on the legitimacy of David's birth, that when David says, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me, that maybe David was illegitimate. And there are many rabbis over the centuries and to this day who teach that, that David had an illegitimate birth. And there's a whole story about his, about his mother, uh, Netzavet Bat Adele, not the singer, uh, David's mother, how, how Netzavet was his mother, and, and there's, I, I don't have time to tell the whole story, but interesting story about how she was thought to be pregnant out of wedlock and David was born illegitimate. What's fascinating to me is that the son of David was and still is questioned by those who refuse to believe in a God capable of producing virgin birth. It's compelling because David's story speaks of David as being born illegitimately in Bethlehem and the rabbis themselves who reject Jesus as Messiah tell a story that is born out in real time through Jesus, who is not illegitimate. Most legitimate birth in history was a birth to a woman who was a virgin. But listen, whether or not the circumstances of David's birth were questionable, He's speaking something worse here. Number three, repentance realizes raw depravity. Repentance realizes raw depravity. What David describes, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. We are all born with the sin nature. We are born into a sinful world. Our parents were sinful. Hey, they may have been good parents. They may have been lousy. Either way, they were sinful. You were born sinful. I've told you before, the proof of that is just give, give an infant like minutes before they're obnoxious. <laughs> I was having such a funny conversation with my daughter Naomi about, about black babies versus Asian babies versus white babies. And which ones that, that my kids thought were, you know, oh, little Asian babies are so beautiful. And, and I, I actually personally think, you know, African-American babies are, are just adorable. And then, baby, and then Naomi goes, but white babies? 
I have to agree with her. Anyway, um, it, it doesn't take long for an infant to be able to scream and cry. And what is the focus? Me. Feed me, change me, put me down to sleep. I'm hot, I'm cold, wah, wah, wah. And it just goes right on into adulthood. <laughs> it's raw depravity, folks. And David has already used three words to fully express this. In verses one and three, he used the word transgression. Transgression, it's pasha, and it's willful wrongdoing. It's rebellion. So anytime you see the word transgression used in the Hebrew scriptures, it's speaking of just straight up rebellion. Amos chapter five, verse 12. I know your transgressions are many and your sins are great who distress the righteous, accept bribes and turn aside the poor in the gate. Transgression, willful disobedience, willful wrongdoing, rebellion. Second word he uses is in verse two and again in verse five and it is iniquity, avon, Avon is, is uh, a deliberate bending, twisting, or distorting, we would say, perversion. So you have rebellion, and now with iniquity, you have perversion. Listen to this. And this, this is very interesting in the way it, it changes understanding. So pay close attention. Exodus 34, verse 6, which is a vital verse in understanding the character and nature of God. The Lord passed in front of Moses, passed by and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, all three words David uses here. Yet, and note this, he will by no means leave unpunished, visiting the iniquity on fathers of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the fourth and third and fourth generations. And for years, people have said, wait, so, so the grandchildren have to pay for the father's sins? No, the Lord visits the iniquity. What does that mean? He visits the perversion of the fathers on the children. That is so different. Just in terms of understanding, he visits every generation to see if the bending and twisting of the fathers, the grandfathers, the previous generations, is going to have that same effect, that same perversion of this generation. It's not that he sees a father who sins and then he comes and he judges the son for that. Read Ezekiel 18, that is completely wrong. It's that God sees the perversion of generations and says, I'm gonna come to the next generation and see if their perversion is still at work in you. And that's the word that David uses for iniquity. So transgression, which is rebellion, uh, iniquity, which is perversion. And then David in verses two, three, and four uses the word sin. It's the word he used when he confessed, when he said, I have sinned, chatati. The word is chatat, sin. And sin just covers all wrongdoing. It is the blanket word for everything that is unrighteous, for everything that is wrong. Three words, rebellion, perversion, wrongdoing, transgression, iniquity, sin. Romans 7, 18 Paul says, I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. That's raw depravity. He says in Romans 7, 24, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death, the sin nature in us, raw depravity. 
And that's what David describes. I came into this world with raw depravity. It's the truth of sin. It's not an excuse to sin, but it is the truth of sin. Speaking of truth, verse six, David goes on. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being. In the hidden part, you will make me know wisdom. He desires truth. Every generation, church growth experts and those who do church surveys, they, they come out and they ask a question. Every generation, what is it you're, you're looking for in church? What are you looking for in church? I remember back in the 90s, back in the seeker-sensitive movement and the purpose-driven movement and all the stuff that was going on in the 90s, the big question that was asked was, what are you looking for in church? And the number one response in the 90s was, we just want something true authenticity, genuineness. You know what the number one thing millennials and Gen Zers are looking for in church today? Brace yourselves. Authenticity, genuineness. They just want it to be real. Don't bring me something that's bogus. Don't play me that old-time religion. But don't bring me some newfangled, you know, hopped-up version either. Just tell me what the truth is. Listen, God desires truth in your inmost being. He wants you to have a heart of wisdom. This is the Lord. He's always calling people to come and be real with him. He doesn't want to play games with you. And if you felt like, well, church is just playing games, well, then don't play. You turn to the Lord. Part of turning to the Lord is, is, is going to, you're gonna begin to want to gather with people who have turned to the Lord. But it's, it's about truth. Sin, sin is like hide and seek. It's like the game hide and seek. And by the way, you know when the first game of hide and seek was played, right? Genesis 3, verse nine, the Lord called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid myself. Hide and seek. Who's doing the seeking? God was. Who's doing the hiding? The naked guy because of raw depravity. And the Lord wants no more hiding. That's what repentance is about. I think one of the most effective things that the enemy, that Satan has done in this culture or over the years is turn repentance into a churchy thing. Oh, oh, you're gonna tell me to repent. Yeah, turn to the Lord. Turn to Jesus. Talk to Jesus. Open your heart to Jesus. It's not about me. It's not about the Bridge Christian Fellowship. It's about you turning to Jesus and saying, I got kind of a mess here. And you know what he'd say to you? Yeah, I know. Yeah, I'm, I've been fully aware of it. Can you help me with this? That's why I'm here. It's what I've come to do. Jesus is the truth who sets you free. No games, no pretense, no fake spirituality. But the sin nature wants to make us hide and cover. And so the Lord through Isaiah said, go tell this people, keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull, their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. It's kind of a, a reverse psychology. 
It's very Hebrew speaking to say, otherwise you might actually have something good in your life if you would just turn and be healed. If he, if he was speaking it to us this morning, he'd say, you know what, keep faking it and you'll never hear. Keep playing games and you will never see, you will never understand and you'll never be healed. And I don't know of anything that is more genuine than repenting and confessing to the Lord of the dark places in my heart. There's no more intimate place than that. Lord, here I am, and this is what I've done. The Lord desires truth, says in the innermost being, to halt. It means in the secret place. I want, I want you to have truth in the secret place, in the covered place. He says, uh, I want you to know wisdom in the inner part. Inner part is satum, and it means the closed off or the obstructed place. Look, take off the cover, open the doors, and know truth, and be honest with God. Repentance, number four, reveals the innermost heart. It reveals the innermost heart. But then I'm exposed, right? But God deals with remarkable tenderness. He's the only one, honestly, that I know I can go to with the worst I've ever done and reveal it, open it up to him, show him the dark, ugly corners and recesses and nooks and crannies of my heart, open it up to him, and he deals with compassion and grace and tenderness and love, and he safeguards the heart to the point that the Bible says, Colossians 3, verse three, you've died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in all glory. See, that's gonna be the day of Christ Jesus. When all of us are seen for who we really are, and that should bring great joy to your heart because if you are in Christ, who you really are is thoroughly cleansed by Christ. Nothing to hide. Repentance reveals the innermost heart. Verse seven, purify me with hyssop, he says, and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Remember, number two in our list was repentance recognizes complete cleansing. And David is doing it again here. And this is the first time in the Bible, note this, that anyone uses the phrase whiter than snow. It's right here. We have that worship song we sing from time to time. It's a little old now. White as snow, white as snow, though my sins be as scarlet. And we get that from Isaiah 118. But David said it first in this prayer of repentance to the Lord. White as snow, wash me. Purify me, he says, with hyssop. To be white as snow requires a good brush. You know, to have, have the sin cleansed from us. We need a good cleansing agent. And that's why David says, purify me with hyssop. This is a vital word, a, a critical word here. It's a leafy Middle Eastern uh, shrub. They actually found uh, several years ago that penicillin grows on hyssop. Interesting. But this leafy shrub, you know it, it's the same thing that was used, a branch of it, to paint the blood of the lamb on the lintel and the doorpost at the first Passover. Exodus chapter 12, verse 22. 
Purify me with hyssop. It was used, hyssop, to dip into the blood of a bird sacrifice along with cedar and a scarlet thread. These three things were dipped together and then sprinkled in the ceremony of a leper who had been cleansed. Now note that it wasn't about cleansing the leper. It's if you have a leper and suddenly he is spontaneously clean, here's the ceremony for this. That's in uh, Leviticus 14, verses one through seven. It's really a bizarre law because who just gets spontaneously cleansed of leprosy? Well, Mark 1, 40 through 44, the law begins to be used as all these one-time lepers are showing up to the priests in the first century going, this guy named Jesus told me I need to show up here for the, for the cleansing ritual. But it was set in motion early on in the law using hyssop to sprinkle. Finally, so you've got, you've got the lintel, you've got the leper, and you've got the lost. Because hyssop was used, it was burned. They would take a branch of hyssop, again with cedar and with a scarlet thread, and there's so much meaning to that, but they'd take this and they would burn it in with the ashes of a red heifer. And then they'd take that ash and they kept it and they would make a mixture of the ashes of the red heifer and the cedar and the scarlet thread and hyssop all together. They would take those ashes, mix it with water, and this would be Numbers 19, verse nine, water to remove impurity. God said it is purification from sin. So hyssop in the Jewish mind has to do with purification. It is all about Cleansing. Why? Why did God command all these interesting applications of hyssop, the lentil, and the leper, and the lost? How did, why did he do this? I am gonna have you turn somewhere. Turn all the way over to Hebrews uh, chapter nine. Hebrews chapter nine in the far end of your Bibles. Hebrews chapter nine. Verse 19. How are we doing on time? Oh, not bad. <laughs> Hebrews chapter nine, verse 19. When every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and the goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant which God commanded to you. Skip over to chapter 10 and look at verse four. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Wait, what? Wait, didn't we just read that they were sprinkled with the blood and that even Torah itself was sprinkled with the blood and it was the blood of the, of the covenant that God is making with them? But now we discover it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Therefore, verse five, when he comes into the world, Messiah, Yeshua, he says, sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you've taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me to do your will, O God. Now, after saying sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, 
Behold, I come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second, that is the new covenant, and says in verse 10, by this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Hyssop was a symbol of purification that could not bring about or even be party to purification until he came, until Jesus arrived. And so when David says, purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean, he might as well be singing, what can wash away my sin? Amen. That is our purification. And this hyssop branch simply was a, an, a symbol or an emblem to point to the purification that would come through Jesus Christ. Okay, run back to Psalm 51. Look at verse eight. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Oh, wait a minute, I missed something. Hyssop? When Jesus was about to die, he said, I'm thirsty. Now, granted, no question, Jesus would have been parched. He would have been thirsty with all that blood loss on the cross. But if you're Jesus and you know you're about to die, you know, he's the one who would say, it is finished, go ahead and say it. What is he doing? Jesus is fulfilling all righteousness. He says, I'm thirsty. A jar of full of sour wine was standing there, John 19, 29, and they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. You think Jesus knew what they were doing? You think he knew that the hyssop would be used? And suddenly, right at the cross, we have hyssop held up to Jesus. This symbol of purification in the Hebrew scriptures now held up to Jesus as he died in purification for our sin. Okay, so make me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my iniquities or my sins and blot out my iniquities. And notice how David keeps doing this. Probably a great study for another time. Sin and, and, and iniquity and transgression and watch how he uses it throughout all of Psalm 51. In fact, that's your homework this week. So you can check that out on your own time. But he says this, he speaks this about this joy. Oh Lord, make me hear joy and gladness. David is so tired of walking in sin and brokenness. And there's nothing good in it. Maybe you're in the same place. Proverbs 17, says, a joyful heart is good medicine, but a broken spirit dries up the bones. And in this case, David is walking around feeling like his bones have literally been broken. This side of repentance, maybe you feel broken as David describes, but hold that thought, hold that thought. I'm gonna come back to it in just a second, but get this. The sorrow that is according to God produces a repentance without regret. But the sorrow of the world just produces death. There is a deep sorrow that, that actually comes along with repentance because sin is sorrow. <laughs> sin is sorrow, pain and simple. But there's always a price. There's always a price. Sin promises pleasure and then steals it. 
It, it presents freedom and then kills it. It offers delight and then destroys it. It steals, kills, and destroys. That's what sin does. But Nehemiah chapter eight, verse 11 says, do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Make me hear joy and gladness, David cries out. Repentance number five in your notes restores the joy. It restores the joy. I'm not talking about the happiness that sin offers, but the true joy, regardless of a world falling apart around us, the joy of the Lord is my strength, the Bible tells us. Repentance restores joy. Joy is a fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy. I mean, it's right at the beginning. It's the state of, of satisfaction and true delight that, again, you can't find this outside of Jesus. Skip down and look at verse 12. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. And I point out again to you, it is not the joy of my salvation. It is the joy of your salvation. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. I don't rejoice in my ability to save myself. I don't rejoice in my strength to heal or save or bring myself satisfaction. I don't even have a willing spirit half the time. It's your salvation. This is such a vital distinction for us. We get stuck in our salvation. You know, you know how I know? Because it, it comes with this phrase. I know someone is stuck in, in my salvation, in their salvation, when they say, I'm not sure if I'm saved. Well, that's because you think it's your salvation. It's not your salvation. It's his salvation. The joy is the joy of your salvation. Psalm 13, five, I have trusted in your loving kindness. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. Not in mine. Because my salvation lets me down. I'm uncertain looking at my salvation. But the joy is his salvation. Isaiah 61.10, remember the filthy rags and the choir robes? Isaiah 61.10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He's wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. Who, me or him? He's done it. As a, a bridegroom decks himself with a garland and a bride adorns herself with her jewels. This is all the work that he does. Eyes on the Lord and you will know the joy of his salvation. Eyes on yourself and you will know the uncertainty of your salvation. Verse 10. Oh, you know this song. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me again the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Notice that God is the, un, the unchanging constant in all of this. That he's at the center of David's repentance. And what David wants more than anything else, this comes out so beautifully in Psalm 51, is he doesn't want to lose the Lord for everything else. He doesn't pray to save the kingdom. He doesn't pray to save the palace. He doesn't pray to save one of his many wives to make this marriage with Bathsheba somehow work. He doesn't pray for any of that. He doesn't pray for his children. He prays that he might not lose his relationship with the Lord. That's the heart, by the way, of repentance. Centered right here in the middle of this remarkable song. 
create in me, he says, a clean heart. I've sullied this one. I've sullied this one. In fact, maybe you think because of your, your, your sin that your heart is stained and, and polluted and diseased and how can God ever make it right? Well, David says, create in me a clean heart. The word create is the same word from Genesis chapter one. In the beginning, God created. The word is bara in the Hebrew and it means something from nothing. Create in me a clean heart. He's saying, God, this heart is so filthy, I need a new one. He's talking about a heart transplant. Man, you may think, I don't know if I even have the heart to repent. That's okay, he'll make a new one. He'll create a new heart, a clean heart. And number six in our notes, repentance then renews my spirit with his spirit. Gives a new heart and fills it with his spirit so that we now have a willing spirit. My spirit becomes willing, a sustained willing spirit. Why? Because I have a clean, a new heart and God dwells there. This is so profound because everything David is describing is what God promised and we saw begin to happen at Pentecost as the spirit would come upon and, and take up residence in these hearts that were filthy and diseased, but now are created clean and now house the spirit of the living God. Repentance renews my spirit with his spirit. In fact, Ezekiel prophesied this. Ezekiel 36, 26, moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. I will give you a heart of flesh. He creates a new heart for a renewed spirit. We got a motor, verse 13. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. Wait, David's gonna be a teacher now? I will teach transgressors, he says. You know what? He already has. He already has become a teacher. I gotta show you this. Back again in 1 Samuel chapter 12, over in verse 22, just listen. Then his servant said to him, what is this thing that you have done? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept, but when the child died, you arose and ate food. And he said, while the child was alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me that the child may live. But now that the child has died, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I will not go to him, but I, I, will, go, I will go to him, but he will not return to me. And in that moment, David has become a teacher. He's teaching on the experience that he himself has just come out of, of repentance of sin. And yes, there was fallout for the sin, even in the death of this child. But David is now able to openly and honestly teach with integrity, which he couldn't have done if he hadn't repented. But keep going. Verse 13, as David teaches from his own repentance, he says, I will teach transgressors your ways. Sinners will be converted to you. And number seven in your notes, repentance returns transgressors. This is really cool. Les said this during communion. Guess what? Your repentance isn't just about you. I mean, it is. It's incredibly intimate. It's incredibly personal. But the moment you repent, the moment you turn to the Lord and he gives the new heart and fills it with his spirit and now you're walking with the Lord, you now are in position to tell others all about it. 
and others will see and will repent. Repentance returns other transgressors. I mean, isn't that, isn't that what we've been talking about? No, no, no. He, he's, he's saying other willfully rebellious ones will return as a result of your repentance. This is your witness. Jesus said, let your light so shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Well, how do I start living good works? Repent. How do I start living a life that, that is even worthy of good works? Repent. Let people see the heart change in you that was wrought through repentance and they will start to return to the Lord. That is your witness and your testimony. And it's not, let me clarify, your witness and your testimony isn't all the bad things that you did. All right, let, let me give my testimony. At the age of 17, I started down this road. And then you, we you know, start explaining and describing all these horrific things. That's not your testimony. Your testimony is all this stuff is gone. I have been saved by the blood of the lamb. People say, well, I know you. I know your old life. You're not a Christian. We, know, we, lived, we saw all the drinking. We saw all the parting. We were with you and all that stuff. Yeah, that was me. Not anymore. I repented. What does that mean? I turned to the Lord and he changed me. I don't do that anymore. Why not? Doesn't it sound fun? No, actually it doesn't. And I'm living for him and that kind of repentance, it returns other transgressors. I guarantee it, other people, they may walk away in a huff, well, well yeah, I'm, you know, pour me another one, but they will be thinking about it. They will be thinking about it and others will be saved simply because you got saved. Verse 14 Deliver me from blood guiltiness, that is uh, damim. Literally, he says, deliver me from bloods, the plural form of blood. Oh God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. Oh Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. Number eight, repentance releases worship. Repentance releases worship. Jesus said in John 4, 23, an hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. In spirit, that is from the innermost place, from the most secret place of the heart. I am not afraid. I am not hidden. I can just honestly worship in spirit and in truth for such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth, in all genuineness, in all authenticity, in what is real. But true spiritual worship cannot happen in the unrepentant heart. There's a block. It's why some people stop coming to church. See, the, the, the simple reality is all you gotta do is repent. Not to me not to the church leaders, not to the fellowship, but to the Lord. You turn to the Lord and that block is taken away. Suddenly, you can come to worship. Think about it in David's life. This is exactly why the Ark of the Covenant had to stay at the house of Obed-Edom for three months. David sought to bring the Ark up on a new cart and he did it, a big old parade, did it completely wrong, sinned against the Lord. They took the ark aside, gave it to Obed-Edom to keep an eye on. And for three months, David goes to the word. He goes back to prayer. He realizes what went wrong. 
And then David went and brought the ark up to Jerusalem the right way. You can read the story, 2 Samuel chapter 6. But do you remember what happened when he brought it up the right way? What was David doing? Dancing with worship before the Lord, dancing with all his might, coming up to Jerusalem. Why? Because repentance releases worship. And worship truly is our expression of the joy of his salvation. Verse 16, for you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You're not pleased with burnt offering. Now, don't misunderstand this. He is not saying terminate the tabernacle. Cancel church. Some have used this verse to say, yeah, see, church services just aren't where it's at. That's why I don't go to church because he does not delight in that kind of thing. Hold on there. David is not saying get rid of these things. David is focused on what's behind these things. Verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Number nine, repentance renders a broken heart. Now, please listen to me on this. Repentance renders a broken heart. This is where it really comes from. He uses the word contrite, a broken and contrite heart. The word is nidkeh, which translates in the Hebrew, crushed to pieces. A broken and crushed to pieces heart, oh God, you will not despise. Repentance renders that is, hands over to God, our mess of broken heart, our, our bloody, fragmented, messy, hurting, messed up. That's what you're handing the Lord when you repent. You're not handing him yourself in a fine new suit or, ladies, a clean new dress with the coolest high heels that are killing your feet. You're not handing him your, your, yourself once you've made it right. He doesn't say the sacrifices of God are a clean spirit, a, a dressed up and a fixed heart. No, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and crushed to pieces heart. And by the way, when you hand over the pain and the sorrow and the mess and the, the brutal fragments and pieces of a broken heart to God, you will never regret it. You will never regret it. It is a repentance without regret. Psalm 34, 18, why? Because the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Psalm 147.3, he heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. Isaiah 61 verse one, Jesus' mission statement, which he spoke on the very first day of his ministry, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives, freedom to prisoners to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Repentance renders a broken heart. Repentance just says, here it is, Lord. I, I can't make this work anymore. 
here's my heart, Lord. It's ugly and it's torn and it's been crushed and it's all I have. Here, Lord. That's repentance. It regards the Lord, number one, recognizes cleansing, number two, realizes our raw depravity, reveals the innermost heart, it restores joy, renews the spirit, returns transgressors to God, releases worship, and renders a broken heart. And right now, so many of us are brokenhearted for Israel. I hate when stuff like this happens. I'm just gonna be, forgive me to be foolish and kind of stupid here for a minute, but we're about to have this joyful celebration, this 20th anniversary today, this morning, and I was looking forward to this and, and the songs and, and getting into the word together, and then yesterday, 6.30 in the morning, the Hamas terrorists break out into Israel, get 15 miles out into the country, hit over 25 different targets. Over 300 Israelis are now dead. Over 1,500 Israelis are seriously wounded. And then you've got countless dozens of Israelis. And some, by the way, American Israeli citizens are in, uh, have been kidnapped and are, have been taken into the tunnels under Gaza. So that if the IDF forces bomb those tunnels, which they would have done in the past, they will be killing their own citizens. And I'm watching this thing unfold throughout the day yesterday and I'm getting texts and emails from everybody. Hey, did you see this? Did you see this? Yeah, yeah. I was uh, WhatsApping back and forth with Roni. Are you okay? What's going on? And Roni says that we haven't seen anything like this. It's the 50th anniversary of the Yom Kippur War where the Arab nations did the same thing, surprise attacked Israel after Yom Kippur. Well, now this is the 50th anniversary and it's at the end of Sukkot on day eight of Sukkot, which was a day of rest. It was Shabbat. Everybody was home. Everybody was resting. Everybody was at peace. So I'm watching all this stuff and my heart is getting heavier and heavier and heavier for Israel and for the Jewish people. And even while we sit comfortably in this building right now, their country has been ravaged and they must respond and they will. Israel is again at war. I'm gonna say something here and, and I, I hope it's not controversial and I hope it's not offensive to anybody. But if you look at the last two verses, David writes, by your favor, do good to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem then you will delight in righteous sacrifices and burnt offering and whole burnt offerings and then young bulls will be offered on your altar and I believe those last two verses are prophetic of the coming kingdom. But David may not even realize what he was pinning although he was inspired by the spirit to write this and yet he sees the coming kingdom coming and he says, do good to your people, do good to Zion, rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Here's the Here's the statement I gotta make. Until Israel as a nation repents and returns to the Lord, it will not know peace. They can put down Hamas and they will. They can run a long standing war and campaign against terror. Hezbollah is already starting to fire rockets from the north to try and open another front. It's, it, it's gonna end this time with Israel, Israel, I believe, will be successful in putting it down. 
but they're not gonna know peace until there is repentance. They will not know God's favor. They will not know his true goodness to Zion until they repent. This is on large scale before our very eyes exactly what happens in a person's heart that refuses to repent. You will not know peace. You will strive and struggle. You'll find anger and bitterness and and sickness in your life because only by repentance do we turn to the Lord. We desperately need this. This country, this country will not turn around. People love to talk about a national revival, renewal, the reclamation of America. All we need is one election cycle. I'm sorry, all we need I'm not sorry. All we need is repentance. You wanna turn around a country? Repent. Well, I can't get the whole country to repent. No, neither could Daniel. But he could repent for himself. And he could repent for his nation. And you can repent for yourself. That's where it starts. Repentance beginning with just one person. But if we can't repent personally, We'll never see a national revival. So really the only path forward for us is through repentance, opening up our hearts and showing that broken, crushed thing to the Lord. And what does he do with that? I have sinned against the Lord. And Natan said to David, the Lord also has taken away your sin. That's the unchanging message of the Lord Jesus across the ages. He declares it again and again and again, and he just declared it again to us here this morning. That repentance for the forgiveness of sin would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. And so I can say, (laughs) happy anniversary, God is faithful, and he has been faithful even all the way from Jerusalem to North Whidbey Island. Amen. 